I have often begun a confirmation class with a reading from the first chapter of the Gospel of John. This gospel begins with a whole bunch of chatter about Jesus. Before he starts teaching or performing miracles or arguing with those in positions of authority, people are talking about him. John the Baptist is there getting conversation started, pointing to Jesus as the Lamb of God, as somebody people should be paying attention to. And soon others are talking as well, wondering just who this guy could be, wondering what's so special about him. And a couple of these curious bystanders end up next to Jesus, side by side, walking on the road. You might know that Jesus talks a whole lot in this particular gospel, sometimes for whole chapters on end. But I like to tell the students that it's important to notice it all begins right here with a very brief question. Jesus turns to these companions on the road and says, what are you looking for? Those are Jesus' first words in the Gospel of John. I have liked beginning confirmation class right there with this particular image of Jesus, already walking with us, asking us questions, interested in what's on our minds, ready to meet us where we are right now. The two disciples ask Jesus where he's staying, and he responds, come and see. So that's what confirmation class is about, I've liked to tell the students. Asking our questions, walking beside Jesus, responding to his generous offer to come and see. I have never begun confirmation class with the story of the golden calf before, and I'm pretty sure it would have never occurred to me to start here. I mean, there is humor in this story. I hope you all caught that. I thought the confirmands read it really well this morning, and I, I think they might have helped you catch this. But nobody can really seem to agree just who it is who brought the people out here into the wilderness. First, the people say it's Moses who brought them out of Egypt. And then Aaron says, no, it's this golden calf who brought you. God says it was definitely Moses' doing. You're responsible for bringing these ungrateful jerks out here. And Moses says it's actually God. They're your people. This was your idea, remember? So it's not without its humor. But in many ways, this is not such an inviting story. It feels ancient and distant. I think it can be difficult to understand the people's behavior. And God comes across here as vengeful and violent and even sort of dabbling in bribery, offering Moses a whole nation of descendants of his own if he will just get out of the way so that God can toast all the people down in the valley worshiping the calf. As one commentator says, this is not God at God's best. So no, I would not have come up with this story for the first sort of day we're welcoming students to confirmation. But we've been in the book of Exodus for several weeks now, and this is where we are in the story. So the golden calf, it is. We often talk about this story as an example of idolatry, which has to do, of course, with worshiping something that doesn't deserve our worship, something other than God, that is. Martin Luther says it this way, to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in that one with your whole heart. I think that's just a helpful way of saying that there really are any number of things in life that we can give our deepest allegiance to, whether that's money or status or national interest or political party or even family. There are any number of things that can function as a God for us. And while there might be good in some of them, none of them 
can offer the grounding and meaning and fullness of life that we most deeply need. It is trust and faith of the heart that make both God and an idol, Luther says, and that deep faith and trust are meant for God alone. So yes, it is certainly a story about idolatry, about misplaced faith and trust. But when I came back to this reading this week, it struck me that there's another angle into approaching this story. Exodus 32 is also a story about the silence of God and how people tend to respond to that silence. The scene for this story has been set by the readings we've been hearing in past weeks. We're in the middle of this larger story of Exodus, the journey of God's people from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the Promised Land. And as we've seen, there's sort of a long and winding road between the two places. The people have much to learn about what it means to be truly free. And sort of so far so good, the people seem to be learning something. They've been receiving daily bread from God in the form of manna. They've been experiencing God's generosity and provision time and time again in the wilderness. They've received the Ten Commandments, the central laws meant to govern their life together. And they all told Moses that they were ready to do what the commandments said. Sounds like they're kind of ready to graduate from the wilderness school and move on into freedom, right? Good marks on the report cards, diplomas in hand. And then seemingly out of nowhere comes this whole business with the golden calf. Didn't you know better, we want to say? I mean, come on. Commandment number two. It's right up front. You shall not make for yourselves an idol, whether in the form of anything that's in heaven above or that's on the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. I think that's pretty clear. Don't you? Moses just gave you that commandment. And you all said, got it. No problem. So what's the deal? Did you forget already? I think it's easy to think that way when it comes to this story. But I think it's also important to look at just what the people were faced with here. I mean, yes, Moses shared those Ten Commandments with the people, but then he was summoned back up the mountain. God wasn't finished speaking with him, so off he went, leaving the people down in the valley. And it was quiet down there in that wilderness place. The Sinai Peninsula is a dry and rocky spot, a very harsh place to try to eke out a living. And the people didn't have a whole lot to do. They were stuck in this in-between place that was uncomfortable and uncertain. They had no idea how long they were going to be there or if they were on the right track to finding their way to someplace better. And now to top it all off, their leader, the one who brought them here in the first place, was back up on the mountaintop again. And not just sort of for an afternoon. The Bible says Moses was gone for 40 days and 40 nights. I don't know how you react when you're stuck in a traffic jam. Maybe you are perfectly calm and collected and rational. But I know I am not my best self when I'm sitting there in a line of cars on the lake road barely inching forward or not moving at all. It's maddening not knowing how long a journey is going to take, not being in control. And it's tempting to do something crazy, like pull your car up onto the sidewalk and just drive around everybody, or just abandon the thing in the road and start walking. Not that I've done those things, but... That's a bit of how I picture the scene down there at the base of Mount Sinai in our reading. 
Do people like, feel like they've been stuck here in a 40-day traffic jam with nothing to do but eat manna and watch the sun rise and set on day after day when they're camped in this inhospitable landscape, getting no closer to the promised land? They're sick of the waiting, sick of the uncertainty, sick of the silence. And so they decide it's time to finally do something, even if it sounds a little bit crazy. It's easy to laugh at the people for their ridiculous behavior, to point a finger at them for trading the living God for an ox that feeds on grass, as the psalm puts it. But the truth is, sticking with this living God is not always easy. Because the living God doesn't always act according to our preferred timelines. And the living God doesn't always give easy answers to the questions that we ask. And the living God is never ours to manipulate or control. Sometimes the living God can seem to be silent when we want to hear a word. So what do we do then? When you look at it that way, I think the situation faced by the people in the wilderness isn't really all that unfamiliar. In fact, a whole lot of life is this way. Much of the time, we are not up on the mountaintop where the decisions are being made. We're down in the valley instead, where it's much cloudier, where things are not so clear. We look around us at an inhospitable landscape, at a wilderness that seems to go on and on, and we wonder how long is this going to last? Whether that's a challenge in an important relationship, or uncertainty about our work or school life, or questions about where God wants us to be using our gifts, or this ongoing upheaval of the whole world in the midst of a pandemic. We want answers. And when they don't come according to our timeline, we can get restless. We can grow weary of waiting, and we can find ourselves trading the living God for something more manageable, something that we can control. The situation faced by the people in the wilderness isn't actually all that strange, is it? There's another option, of course, and it's right there in the story. Moses never gives up. While the people scramble to go make their own God, Moses alone remains faithful here. All right, now hold on, you might be saying. That's not really fair, because that's pretty easy for Moses to do. I mean, he is summoned up there to the mountaintop, after all. He's privy to God's plan. He's in the room where it happens. He doesn't have to face that same uncertainty, that same silence from God that leads the people to get impatient and restless. And it's true, Moses does have a special relationship with God. But part of what is so special about Moses, part of what makes that relationship work, is Moses' ability to wait. A few chapters back, after delivering the Ten Commandments to the people, Moses gets called back up the mountain. And of course, he obeyed, he trudged back up, and he found the glory of the Lord settled at the top, which sounds nice. But the Bible says that after Moses arrived, it was six days before God said anything. Six days of just Moses and that quiet glory. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a pretty long time to sit in silence. Kind of wondering if you heard the message right, if you were actually supposed to come back up here again. I kind of imagine if I'd been in Moses' shoes, I might have given it 30 minutes, an hour at most. But that's not what Moses does. He waits for this God he can't control, day after day, trusting that God will, in fact, show up. And sure enough, on the seventh day, 
God starts speaking. So like I said, I would not have come up with the story of the golden calf to begin our year of confirmation class. But maybe there is something right about starting with those two images. On the one hand, a group of people who get sick of waiting and so who settle for easy answers, for a God of their own making. And on the other hand, a prophet who persists even in the face of uncertainty and struggle, who never gives up on God. I hope you hear an invitation there to hold on to your questions to continue struggling even when the going is tough and the answers aren't coming quickly or at all, to settle for nothing less than the living God. That's not just a word for confirmation class, really. It's for the whole life of faith. Following this God is an adventure far beyond our imagining, far beyond our control, and it is better that way. Who knows what we'll find as we wait and watch and listen together. Come and see. Amen.